to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege this evening of coming to you in prayer. We thank you that even as you sit on your throne in heaven, we can come before you in prayer because we come in the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ who stands at your right hand, always interceding for us, bringing our prayers before you. We don't deserve this, and yet we thank you, Lord, that you are gracious to hear us, especially in our time of need. We pray for each one who is here tonight, and pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear your word, to hear it with ears of faith, for we are dull. We are dulled by our sin. We are dulled by our physical bodies and our lack of attention. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to give attention to your word. For it is here in your word that we find life, even as the people of Israel found life coming in the form of that water flowing from the rock at Horeb. We know from the New Testament that that rock was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would give us living water, that you would feed us with the bread of heaven, that as we hear your word, that we might be enabled to understand it. We thank you for the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, even before he returned to your presence in heaven, that he would send the Holy Spirit, who would remind us of the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus that tell us that all of the scriptures speak of him. And so we pray for your special blessing on us tonight as we hear your word preached, that we might understand that even as it spoke to the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, even as it spoke to the people of God in Jesus' day, so it speaks to us in our day, because you are gracious and because your Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts and minds. We pray that you would do this all for your glory and for our benefit and edification. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand now and keep your Bibles open. Turn a few books over back to Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, and then through to the end of chapter 6, as we consider tonight the fall of Jericho. As the people of God have come before this great city, God has promised them victory, and here we see it outlined for us. Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days." On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. 
Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Sometimes it's curious the way in which battles happen, and sometimes even the fact that they happen at all. Earlier this month, on December 7th, we celebrated the anniversary of the sneak attack at Pearl Harbor, and over the years I've read different accounts of that, but one of the interesting things about the battle at Pearl Harbor and the destruction of the American fleet is that nobody thought that it could happen. The U.S. Navy thought that they had a secure harbor, that they could bring their ships in there and they were safe from attack, particularly safe from attack by the torpedo bombers. Pearl Harbor is shallow and at the bottom of that water that's not very deep, it's mud. And so everyone had always figured that if you came in and tried to drop your torpedoes, they would come off the airplanes, they'd dive down kind of deep and they would get stuck in the mud and so everybody would be safe. But as it turned out, the Japanese had figured out a way to make that attack happen and it was by a simple thing, just some wooden fins that were attached to the rear of the torpedoes that would make them shallow out their dive as soon as they hit the water and then continue on the course that happened. And of course, you probably know what happened, that that's exactly what the Japanese did early on December 7th. They came in with the torpedo bombers and they destroyed a great portion of the American fleet, something that nobody had expected to happen, a strategy that nobody thought would work. Well, as Joshua and Israel come to attack Jericho, the strategy that they employ, that the Lord gives them, is crazy. It's an unlikely way to have a battle, to do battle against this great city with its great walls, with its big army, an experienced army. And on the other side, you have the Israelites with a few armed men, no experience in battle. But here, Joshua chapter 5 and 6, and this is what I want you to see, especially tonight, is not really about the military battle. It's not a military account of a people coming and destroying a city. But it's first of all about the purity of the land, the purity of worship of a people and of a promised land that God is giving them. And it's also about the sinfulness of a people, the Canaanites, and God's judgment that is coming upon the Canaanites. So as we look at this chapter, the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Joshua, I want you to see that the Lord of hosts comes to defeat for us all his and our enemies. 
It's a picture of what God does again and again in the Old Testament, again and again in the history of his church. The Lord of hosts comes to defeat for us all his and our enemies. And it's beautifully summarized in the shorter catechism as it speaks of Jesus in particular as our king. That's what we need. That's what Israel needed. They needed a king who would defeat their enemies for them. We need a king who will do that, and that's what the Shorter Catechism says. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And Joshua chapter 6 is a picture of exactly that So I want you to see it tonight under three points. First of all, a fearsome commander. Secondly, a faithful obedience. And then thirdly, a fearful judgment. Here at the end of chapter 5, we see a fearsome commander. And this is why I've put the text together this way. Sometimes the chapter markers don't exactly represent, I don't think, the way in which the story of a text is put together. But I think it fits well, because here we see Joshua by the city of Jericho, probably off on his own, maybe praying to the Lord, wondering, how is this going to happen? And he comes face to face with this fearsome commander. Because Joshua's question is, who is going to conquer all our enemies? And it can only be done by this commander. The text says that Joshua lifted up his eyes, he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him. He appears as a man, takes us back maybe, and maybe in your mind's eye, you go back to Abraham. When these three men came to him messengers of God who were bringing to him the good news of a promised son, that long-promised son that God had promised to Abraham. It's about to be fulfilled, the promise to him. These special messengers come to Abraham. It's God visiting Abraham. But here, It's a man that comes as well. And it's a reminder, particularly, that God comes as a personal presence. You see, God has been with Israel, and they've known it. They've seen it in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. But here, a man comes, the personal presence, but not just a man. What does he have? He comes with a drawn sword in his hand. He's a man, but he is obviously a warrior. He comes with a sword in his hand. And again, it's an image that you would have seen before in the books of Moses. Think of Balaam who comes hired by the enemies of Israel to curse Israel, and yet God prevents him by doing that. How does he prevent him? Well, you maybe remember the story. Balaam is riding on his donkey, and he comes to a particular place where there's only room enough just for the donkey to get through. And who's standing there? There's a messenger, the angel of the Lord, with a drawn sword. The donkey sees it, but Balaam doesn't right away, preventing him from cursing the people of Israel, going to do the bidding of that king, Balak. But there's also that 
sword even there at the very beginning. As Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, what prevents them from going back and being destroyed? God sets his angels there with drawn swords, keeping them out until God has seen fit to send his Savior and open the way again. The drawn sword in his hand. And then Joshua questions him. Are you for us? Are you with us on our team? Or are you with our adversaries? Are you for us or against us? And it's the wrong question. This man, this warrior says, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. He is the commander of the hosts of the Lord, of God's army. And it's a reminder to Joshua that the battle is the Lord's. You see, it's not about Joshua's military prowess. It's not about the strategy that he might employ to take this city, however secretive it might be. But no, the battle is the Lord's. And the reaction of Joshua is to fall on his face and worship. You see, this is God who is coming to speak directly to Joshua, to tell him, this is how you are going to conquer the city. What does my Lord say to the servant? He's worshipped, he recognizes that he's in the presence of God himself. And the commander says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. You see, it's a repeat, isn't it? It's a repeat of what happened to Moses as he encounters the burning bush in the desert. He encounters that burning bush and recognizes he is in the presence of Almighty God, in the presence of holiness. God is holy. His messenger is holy. And because this is his land and he wants it to be holy, God is going to fight for Israel to cleanse the land of all sin. But he needs to send his fearsome commander to remind Joshua that he is not alone. And in fact, that it's not even he that fights the battle. And I would say that this is indeed a a pre-incarnation representation, a, a coming of the Lord Jesus. How do we know that? Well, certainly we know it because Jesus is in various places shown to be a warrior for us. The enemy is sin, he fights for us. The enemy is death, he fights for us. He restrains our enemies, as the catechism said. But listen to what we read in Jude, verse 5, here in the New Testament. Now, I want you to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It was Jesus himself who saved the people, who went with them. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Jesus went with the people. He was their warrior. And he is that one who... At the end of time, and we're going to get to more of this in a minute, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Only a fearsome commander can give the victory to the people of Israel. 
So what kind of people can inhabit this land? What kind of people is God going to use to do battle here before Jericho? And this is where we come to a faithful obedience. We read in verse 1 of chapter 6, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. The city is closed, and we can imagine the people of Jericho are pretty confident in their gates, in their giant walls, and in this inexperienced army who comes. Is there going to be a siege of the city? Maybe so, but a siege might take a long time waiting for the people to no longer have water, waiting for their supply of food to go out. It usually takes months and years, and Israel is not prepared themselves for that long siege. So what do we see here? Again, we see this very unexpected method that God is using to bring victory for him. What does God use? Well, we we read here about a people just marching around a city. They're marching around the city, and they're not throwing threats at them. They're not saying, ha, we've got you now, right where we want you. No, they're quiet. Not a word comes out of their mouth. We see trumpets blowing Trumpets that might usually have forecast a great victory or proclaimed a great victory, now they're blowing. We see priests, we see the ark moving around the city. It's a religious procession, as it were, not even a military procession. It's totally unexpected. And yet what we see here is God giving the instruction in Israel, Joshua faithfully obeying. And this is why I think it's connected back to chapter 5, is because here we find the instruction of this fearsome commander that leads to the faithful obedience of the people of Israel. Just three quick things to say about this portion of the text in verses 1 to 14. First of all, that it is God who does it. The accent, again, is not on Joshua and his great leadership. It's not on Israel and their prowess in battle. No, verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. The people can trust God. They can have faith in him because he has said he will do it. All they need to do is just march around the city. But God is going to do it. The people really do nothing, do they? All they do is just march around the city once on the first day, go back to the camp. Come back on the second day, and that's what we see here. They do it on the first day. They do it on the second day. For six days, they march around the city Once blowing the trumpets, we hear the sound of the trumpets. We see the ark carried by the priests. We see the men of war following before and behind. But that's all. 
because God is going to do it. And he's going to do it in his way, and he's going to do it in a way that is going to bring him most glory. But we see also that Joshua and the people obey. In verses 8, after the instruction is given about going around and blowing the trumpets and the great shout and the wall falling down flat, it says in verse 8, just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. Joshua doesn't question the instructions. We might have occasion to do that. We might wonder. But Joshua obeys. He takes the word that God has given him and he gives it to the warriors. He gives it to the priests. And he tells them exactly what to do. There's no question. Joshua was a military leader, but he knew that the Lord knew what he was doing. Why? Because think back to the reading that we just had in Exodus chapter 17. There, Joshua is in charge of the army of Israel. And God's way of defeating Amalek was not so much because of the courage of the soldiers, but the prayers that Moses was praying. As Moses prayed and lifted up his hands, they gained the victory. As he grew weary and his hands went down, they were defeated. But finally, through the prayers, the army won, and Joshua understood this. And then we read, even as Joshua instructs them, that they rose, verse 12, early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And everything that the Lord had instructed Joshua, all the instructions that Joshua had given to the people, they now do word for word. And I think that's why there's a, a kind of repetition in the text, right? It, it could be told in less words, but it's a reminder that the people, because of Joshua, obey, they trust God. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews in the New Testament reminds us of. There's only two parts of this hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 that speak of Joshua and the conquest. And it's right at the end. After he's spoken of Moses and the Passover and the deliverance, down in verse 30, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, we read, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, because they believed in the word of God and they did exactly as he said. It's not by horsemen, it's not by sword, it's not by mighty warriors that God wins the battle, but by his word and his people believing and trusting. They believed in the promise of God because God had promised it earlier. Deuteronomy chapter 7, he will Give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. They believed in the word of God, and we see this faithful obedience of the people. But there's something else here, and again, the accent goes back to what God is doing. Maybe you noticed it there in the text between verses 4 and 13. The ark is mentioned nine times. Nine times, 
highlighting for us that God is at the center of what is happening here before the walls of Jericho. They can believe the people of Israel can do as God asks. Why? Because God is with them. He's with them, that ark representing to them the very presence of God who dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat. This symbol, accompanied by faith, told them, God is with us, and because God is with us, we will gain the victory. And it's not just magic, is it? No, it required real living faith. Because later on, generations later, as the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, What do they do? They think, well, the Philistines have beaten us in this battle. What we'll do is we'll just take the ark out to the army, and that'll help us. But what happens? Because they've abandoned God, because they've abandoned his worship and fallen into idolatry, they're routed by the Philistines, and the ark is captured. God is not with them anymore because they will not obey him. And yet here we see that gospel principle that God is doing his work. He calls us to faith. He saves us by grace, which should lead us to good works. We're not saved by what we do. Israel's not saved by what they do. It's by what God does. But it does lead to a faithful obedience, and we see them gaining the victory through God's methods. A fearsome commander who fights for them. A faithful obedience, even as they consider the plans that God has, the method, the way of doing it, yet they obey. And then thirdly, in verses 15 to 27, we see this fearful judgment. You see, for six days they've been obedient The second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. And then we come to the climax on this seventh day, right? Seven, the number of completion. Everything's going to be over. The battle is going to be over on this day. The climax is coming. And what are the signs of that judgment, the fearful judgment that are coming? Well, we see it in the trumpets that are blown. At the seventh time, verse 16, the priests had blown the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, shout. There are trumpets blowing. The shofar, it's a sign of of battle. Before Mount Sinai, the trumpets were blowing, telling the people of Israel, God is coming to the mountain. Stay away. The holy God is coming down. They would blow the trumpets in battle. What else is happening? The shouting. The people shout. They've saved their voices, as it were. And now they're ready. Six days marching around the same thing again and again. Now seven times, and yet now they shout. They shout that God is giving the victory. They go into the city because the walls fell down and fire consumes the city. They burn it. All these are signs of judgment. They're signs of judgment that connect for us the final 
judgment. The final coming of the Lord Jesus for a second time as he returns to judge the earth in righteousness. Maybe you're thinking of that text of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he speaks about that great day when Jesus returns. And he says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a shout, a great cry of that fearsome commander, the Lord Jesus. You hear the sound of the trumpet. He is returning to judge the earth in righteousness. The dead in Christ will rise first. All will rise to be judged before the throne of Christ. We're going to sing a hymn a little bit later. It's a John Newton hymn. who certainly knew about the grace of God, but he recognized too that alongside the grace of God, there is judgment, there is justice. And he writes in that hymn, the first verse, Day of judgment, day of wonders. Hark, the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunders, shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. These signs, the things that the people of Israel do, are signs of the judgment, signs even of the final judgment. And so what does the judgment look like? It truly is a fearful judgment. All living things are killed. Everything in the city is destroyed other than those precious things that go into the treasury of the Lord. For the city of Jericho, it's like what happened in the flood. Everything that had breath is destroyed. It's a fearful judgment. Verse 17, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Everything's destroyed. Down in verse 20, we read, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The walls fall down. People are crushed beneath the walls, but Israel goes forward and captured it. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So we need to say something here, don't we, about this judgment, because we don't find this kind of warfare happening very often, even in the Old Testament here, where everything is destroyed. And it is a fearful judgment to think about men, women, and children killed, destroyed. And there are some who would say, well, that's just the God of the Old Testament. Those are stories for the Old Testament era. We live in the New Testament. God is not like that anymore. We can just ignore those texts. Marcion said that and just got rid of that part of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament. People might say, well, this actually never really happened. This was just somebody maybe later on putting into the story. The Bible isn't a true book. But we don't believe that. 
We believe that we have the Word of God here. This is part of the Word of God, and so we have to understand it. What can we say about this fearful judgment? Well, first we need to see and understand who God is. What does He have to say? And and be able to say, God is good. God is just. God's Word is true. True justice is being done here at Jericho. God is not vengeful. He's not capricious in the way that he judges people and nations. God is good. God is just. His word is true. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is a sacrifice to the Lord. It's for the Lord, devoted to destruction for the Lord. People of God giving it to him. But we can see it too from the perspective of Israel and begin to understand not only the great wickedness of the Canaanites, but the things that God is keeping his people from. Part of it is this is God giving them their inheritance. They were not capable of destroying the Canaanites and all the other nations, all these great cities with giants. But God is doing it and fulfilling the promise, and he is protecting them, protecting them particularly from idolatry and sin. Because he had told them back in Deuteronomy, even before they came into the land, before they came out of the desert, that they would be tempted by these nations to worship in the way these nations worship, to follow after their gods. And so God is sweeping them away so that Israel might not fall into temptation. But for these Canaanites, these citizens of Jericho, we see that great judgment is coming on them. And it is part of God punishing the nations for their sin. Five, six hundred years of a culture that has fallen into the pit. Child sacrifice, temple prostitution, divination, sorcery. Educating their children in the midst of this culture. And think about how patient God has been to see them desecrating this place that he's set apart for his people, ultimately, there in the Old Testament. God has been very, very patient. But it's a reminder to us again that all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? We are all sinners. We've been reminded that of that through the month of December. And all sinners deserve the wrath and curse of God. The wages of sin is death. And that's what we're seeing here. And it is a picture. Like I said, it doesn't happen that often in the Old Testament that everything is destroyed. But I think it is the the judgment of God, as it were, intruding into history, reminding us that there is a final judgment and we need to be ready. Whether you're a Canaanite 
or an American or some other nation, Jew or Gentile, you need to be ready because God will judge the nations in righteousness at that last day. It's a picture of the final judgment, but it's also a picture of mercy. Don't miss that here. Yes, a whole city is destroyed. And yet, what do we read? Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Don't forget. Don't forget to rescue her and all who are in her household out of the city because she believed. You see, the Spirit of God was at work in her house, even though her whole city, the whole city was guilty before God. Men, women, and children. Yet God by his mercy, chose to save one. God is just, yes, but he is also merciful. Final judgment comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus also saves. And this whole text is a reminder that we're not deserving of that rescue, and yet... Here is one, a Canaanite prostitute whom God chooses to save by his grace. Where do you stand? You see, we either stand with Rahab, recognizing that we deserve to fall with the city, and yet God saves us because we confess him as Lord of all. Or we stand in our sin in our own righteousness, which is filthy rags, and we will be judged along with those in Jericho. The beauty of this is that it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, because all of Israel's laws, one commentator has said, were signposts to the spiritual realities behind Christ's redemptive work for us. Jesus took the curse. Jesus was judged by God in our place. And now he is our warrior who defeats our enemies because in the New Testament, we no longer have this kind of warfare where we go out and destroy the enemies of God, but there is a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but principalities and power. Satan is our enemies. His demons are our enemies. Sin is our enemy. Death is our enemy. And Jesus is gone before us. He has done it. He has averted, if we've trusted in him, that fearful judgment. It's New Year's Eve. And I don't know for you whether the coming of a new year excites you about all of the possibilities of what might happen. Maybe it makes you anxious, wondering what's going to happen in this coming year. But New Year's Eve and the celebration of a new year is another reminder that every day we are closer to Jesus' return. And if you are a believer tonight, part of the church of Jesus Christ, believing in him by faith, you have no reason to fear. Because on your side is the fearsome commander who has defeated all your enemies, who continues to be at work even as you fight against sin, as the Holy Spirit makes you more and more holy and faithfully obedient. I think I've used this illustration before maybe, but if you've ever been out to Colorado Springs and had a chance to tour the Air Force Academy, they have a beautiful chapel there. 
and it's a big building that, that goes up, and as you go inside and you look towards the front, there's a cross hanging there. But it's a cross probably 30 feet tall, and it's in the form of a sword. It's got the blade of the sword, and the two sides make it look like a cross. They're kind of curved there. And I think it's a a wonderful illustration of both the judgment that we deserve and what Jesus has done for us to avert that judgment. What he did for Israel there at Jericho, what he has done for his people through the ages. Because it's as if we're living under that sword, right? The sword, it's about to fall. If it falls down, it would pierce, it would hurt, it would kill. And yet Jesus underwent the punishment. He took the sword, the wrath of God in our place. And so that cross, that judgment, turns into something beautiful so that we have no reason to fear. But to those who have confessed, John Newton says, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near you blessed, see the kingdom I bestow, you forever shall my love and glory know. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God calls us to believe and carry with us as we go into the new year, trusting in God who is always with us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for loving us. We give you thanks that Judgment has been been averted for us, the people of God, and that you have done that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is good news for us because so many have chosen their own way and continue to rest under the fear of judgment. Oh, Lord, take away that fear for us. Help us to look to you. And we pray that even as we trust in the Lord Jesus, work by your spirit to be obedient to you and whatever you have called us to, that we as the church of Christ might show forth the glory of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died for sinners, those deserving of death and eternal judgment. And so we thank you for this good news that is proclaimed to us. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.